Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with the legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Yogi Amin, I'm a partner and I head up the Public Law and Human Rights Department at Erwin Mitchell and I'm back in the hot seat today to talk to you about a topical issue with some very special guests. The subject for today is schools and special educational needs. As schools open up their doors this week, it's yet another really uncertain period for children, parents, carers, families, and also the charities that support them. As we find ourselves in the anniversary of the first lockdown, we're going to look at today the impact of going back to school and the transition from homeschooling to being back in the classroom. We're also going to look at the educational health and care plans, those legal documents that play a critical role in the child's life and how they can help children and families. We'll consider whether the legal rights should be looked at again as children return and the key deadlines when it comes to plans for the next year. To discuss all of this and more, I'm joined by my colleague and educational law expert, Erin Smart. And first of all, I'll turn to my guest, Jessica House. Hi, Jessica. Hello. Thanks for having me today. Jessica is a therapist, the charity BIBIC, which is a national charity which delivers therapeutic programmes to disabled children and young adults. Jessica, I believe you've been with the charity for a number of years now. Can you explain exactly what it is the charity does and what you do? Yes, so um, I've been with Bibic since 2018 um, and I'm a therapist. We work directly with children and families um, to assess their needs um, and come up with therapy plans and support for them, working specifically with the family. But as part of our key working service, we also get to work with schools, which is really exciting. Well, it's great to hear from you and to hear all the great work your charity does in these challenging times. We're also joined today by Claire Keir, who is the mother of Zach. Hi, Claire. Hi, Yogi. Yeah, I'm Claire. I've got a young son called Zach. He's a client um, of Erwin Mitchell. Um, he has cerebral palsy and epilepsy. How old is Zach? He's nine years old. And um, on his ninth birthday last year, last June, he finished the 2.6 challenge, raising a significant amount of money for the Epilepsy Society. And he's a bit of a media star at the moment, isn't he? Yeah, the media's still ongoing as well as we're trying to, uh, we're campaigning currently um, to include epilepsy into the online harms bill, which um, the Epilepsy Society have kindly named Zach's Law. So we're currently campaigning and doing a lot of media appearances for that at the minute. Well, that's exciting stuff, which we'll talk about in more detail later on. But can I start with speaking to you, Claire, to find out how Zach has been coping and if he's ready to return to school? He's not been back in school since um, before the Christmas holidays. So the middle of December, he's been out of school since. Over three months. Yeah. And so how have you found homeschooling? Homeschooling in lockdown three has been significantly different to the first lockdown in that the teachers are significantly more prepared. Um, it's been a lot more organised. The children had actually had the opportunity to use Google Classroom while schools were open. So they did, you know, they had the experience on how to use that. 
So there's been a lot more structure. There's been a lot more um, constructive education, I suppose. They've had live lessons. But on the flip side of that, it's a lot of demand for a child in a home setting to be tra- for, their, for the teachers to try and have them access via a, um, a laptop the full entire school day. How many hours is he on a laptop? <laughs> laptop, iPads, he's probably glued to a screen most of the day at the minute in some form or another. We have actually had to deal with it this time. I have had to speak to school and reduce the demands on him. Um, so we have actually turned around and just focused on his literacy, his comprehension and his math skills. So we've kind of left out the geography, the history, the science, and we've just focused on his core subjects so as to reduce the pressures that are on him. There's quite an adjustment to his educational programme as a result of his cerebral palsy and the special educational needs he has. Yeah, definitely. So I would imagine how they deal with this in the classroom is one thing, but how have you had to deal with this at home? Um, I don't know, but we've had lots of arguments. Um, (laughs) You know, they're obviously a lot more willing to do work in a school setting and I think it's I think that's typical for all children, not just those with educational needs, special needs. I think most parents are finding that homeschooling is quite literally the hardest thing that they've ever had to contend with, um, you know, with their children. But then with children with behavioural issues and mental health problems, you know, all of these issues are magnified. Can I just turn to you, Jessica? I presume you've heard plenty of these stories and the challenges families have faced. Yes, very much so. We've had parents that in some ways are really appreciative of the time at home because children that are struggling within the school environment are at home, but then the learning at home is still a demand for the children to be able to manage. And in some cases, they just can't manage at all. I know certainly with the families I've worked with, I have a lot of children I see that just simply refuse to do any work because they're used to school being at school and home being at home and those boundaries can't be blurred. Um, and I know that other elements of it since children have been at home, we've had a lot of an increase in inquiries from parents um, as they're kind of seeing more of the difficulties present that the children are struggling with. So to adapt to that, we've had to create digital assessments so we can continue supporting families and coming up with ways to help them through this time and then the transition back to school as well. So it's been good that we've been able to adapt to that and continue that support for them. I presume a lot of families have had assessments and support put on hold, have they? Um, We've thankfully been able to keep going throughout we physically closed the doors to our clinic until the summer, but we were there very much digitally. Some families did choose to wait until they can come in person, which is totally understandable. And then since then, we've been doing in-person and digital and blending the two together in some cases, which has been working well for families. And it's been lovely to see them face to face again as well. Can I turn to you, Erin, on this? Have you been inundated with questions and concerns from families when it comes to possible legal support they need? Yeah, absolutely. There's been a real range um, of queries coming through. Um, Obviously, as the lockdown was introduced and the schools closed, lots of concerned parents about how their children were going to receive the provision that's on their EHCPs um, without actually being able to access the school setting. And of course, you know, there there are lots of different duties linked into that and I think now with schools going back um, it's going to be a case of making sure that those gaps are filled um, and trying to help any children that may have fallen behind or 
uh, potentially missed out on some of that provision to ensure that those are put back in place as soon as possible now that they're back in a school setting um, to really get them working towards uh, their outcomes as identified in their EHCPs. So are they looking to review the legal obligations when it comes to those plans? So the duty to provide um, what's in the EHCP has continued and it is an absolute duty on the local authority to provide what is detailed in uh, what's Section F of the Education, Health and Care Plans. Um, Section F is the section which details educational provision and it's very important that children are supported in line with those plans because they are based on the professional recommendations um, and annual reviews that feed into the plans and, and the whole process around that. So it's just ensuring really that those are specific enough that schools are properly aware of what needs to be delivered and are appropriately funded in order to reasonably deliver what's um, expected of them to the pupils that, that are, are in receipt of the HCP. Now, I assume what was the plan a year ago may not be the plan now. Is that right? Yeah, I imagine that the EHCPs have um, and will require some significant updating, um, not in the least because of the potential missed sessions. Um, I think we're going to see an increase of therapy provision going into the EHCPs, to, even if it is for a, um, a block of a, a term's you know, worth of extra provision, for example, just to try and close that gap um, and to catch those pupils back up on the provision that they may have missed over lockdown. Jessica, what challenges are children facing by returning to school? Is there a concern about how they'll adjust? Definitely. And I think that's one of the the main concerns that I'm having with the families I work with at the moment. I mean, even just before our chat now, I had a parent come in to discuss that topic of itself, um, where the child is really worried about the transition back into a school setting and how they're going to manage. And thankfully, their school is being really productive. They're putting in specific one-to-one meetings for the pupil and teacher but I would say it is a consistent worry across all of the families that I see that transition back into school is really quite daunting um, for children. Claire I presume Zach is really excited about returning to school this week. Not in the slightest to be honest no (laughs) no he's um he he kind of flits between the two he he kind of wants to see a couple of his friends Uh but the actual thought of you know, walking up to that door on Monday morning, you know, and we had it after the first lockdown and the second lockdown, it, it just results in him having a massive meltdown and he, he just can't handle it. It's so much for him to deal with. And are you getting any advice to deal with the transition? I'm actually speaking with school soon. We're going to do a phased return for him. So, you know, we did learn some lessons after the first lockdown that because of his fatigue, because of his anxiety and everything else, we just, you know, he did the first full week and he was extremely emotional after every single day at school. So we took it back and he was finishing school after lunchtime for a week and we gradually built him up to finish, you know, the fir- uh, a full day by the October half term, I think it was. So then he did a full term up until Christmas and here we are again dealing with it again. I presume if he doesn't engage he gets upset and what then? That's it and he and then he sees the setting as a place that worries him 
and that frightens him. So there's been days where he's kicked and screamed and, you know, tried to crash the car on the way to school and things like that. So what we're doing is just trying to take those pressures and demands off him. You know, no, if you can't get to school for 9am Monday morning, then we'll get there for half nine if you can make that. Or, you know, instead of trying to have such strict boundaries on it, try and work with him and work to his timescale when he's ready. Are the only other parents in similar situations that you've spoken to? Um, so some of the children with the HCP have remained in school or have been doing half days or a couple of days a week to keep that routine. I made the decision at the beginning that it was probably more beneficial for Zach to stay at home with me and just do the full time with me at home. So I think some of the children will have it slightly easier, but then of course they've got the anxieties of everybody descending back into the classroom. So whereas there's been, you know, six or eight children in the class is now going to be 32, 34 children again. So I think regardless of what people's situation is, whether their children are being in school or at home, there's a lot going on for, for everybody. So it sounds like phasing is the key. Yeah, yeah. I do. Th- I, I, it definitely worked once we started doing the phase return with him. And like we've done in lockdown, not focusing on his other subjects, just focusing on the core subjects. He's got his SATs next year. Let's, you know, try and get him from here to this time next year as smoothly as possible. You're really thinking ahead. And Erin, if children are caught in a phased transfer situation and they're due to move schools in September, is there a lot of disruption there as well? Absolutely. I think I think the other issue as well with the lockdown and with schools not having seen their pupils for such a long time, it's trying to work out which setting would suit them best um, in a bit of a vacuum. And, you know, lots of parents unfortunately unhappy with the with the school that's been chosen and and probably actually a lot of schools also unhappy with being named because they're having to base all of their decisions on paperwork alone you know there haven't been the usual abilities of parents to go and look around the school in person for the head teacher to actually meet the pupil so schools are having to base their decision as to whether or not they can accept a child purely on the paperwork and predominantly on the EHCPs and as we've already identified those EHCPs can very quickly become out of date and so if children if schools sorry are having to make decisions on outdated paperwork they're going to be making uninformed decisions, um, which parents are then clearly concerned about. Um, and whilst obviously there is that there is a challenge there, um, and certainly there's a legal challenge that I'm sure we can talk about um, a bit later, it's it's a concerning time. And obviously, you know, September, it, it seems like it's still a long way away, but it will come around very, very quickly, especially for those parents who have to lodge tribunal appeals. Um, and then you've got that tribunal timeline as well um, thrown into the mix. And and as you said, it's the uncertainty of that transition and the children that struggle with change anyway, you know, the, the longer that we can afford them the opportunity to come to terms with where it is that they're going to be going to school in September and to have a proper and thoroughly thought through transition, then the better. So, yeah, it's it's a difficult time, I think, for for schools, but especially for parents. Yeah, just talk us through quickly the legal timeline for all these changes, because you mentioned September, we're in March now. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in September, obviously, is the date by which the children will be in their new setting. 
Um, so primary school into secondary school, infants into juniors, nursery into primary, and all of those decisions as to where those children should be moving on to need to have been made by the local authority and confirmed with the parents by the 15th of February for those children with EHCPs. So, so that deadline's passed. Exactly. And it's precisely because of the timeline um, for the appeal, because to have a decision in February actually allows and provides parents with that time to challenge, if necessary, in order to get a decision from the tribunal or otherwise before September and to try and allow for a little bit of time um, and as much time as possible, as I say, for the, for the pupils to actually visit the schools, to, to potentially meet the teachers, albeit if it's still having to be done virtually. And then the second deadline is coming up and it's the 31st of March for children transferring from secondary school to post-16 um, education, so colleges. So those both trigger decisions by the local authority? Exactly. For, 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 for education, health and care plan pupils, obviously there are separate admissions processes for children without education, health and care plans. But um, for those children with plans, um, the deadlines are set and they're quite strict. And Jessica, in terms of assessments, is, um, how is that going to work over the next two, three months? Are you going to have a, just a huge backlog of work to do? Um, we don't run to school terms, um, so we're constantly assessing throughout the year. Um, we only close at Christmas because we need Christmas. <laughs> um, so we you, are, you get a holiday, at yeah, yeah, and <laughs> other holidays throughout the year, but not to do with term times. Um, and we also assess at weekends to make sure, well, sporadic weekends to make sure that families that can't come to us in the week can still see us. Um, so. I think at the moment we're booking into June, so assessments are still coming in thick and heavy, and it's wonderful to still be able to support families. But um, so some of the times our reports are used within that EHCP process as evidence, um, and there's a lot of families that are concerned at the moment with how their process has been. I've had some children that, as we know, Typically, you would be seen by an educational psychologist in person or a paediatrician or any other professional that's involved as part of that assessment process. And it's not happened for some of the families that I see. And it's all been very much done through paperwork, as you said earlier, Erin. And that's a concern for families moving forward, um, especially if some of that paperwork is outdated or it wasn't done in the optimal way for the child to be able to show their best potential and how things are for them so that's understandably a worry especially with transition coming up for them and you i mean presumably this is if a child's going through a rehabilitation process then education's key in that and how would you sort of tailor your assessments to make sure the education is optimal. Mm. So our assessments are very holistic. We'll look at the child as a whole. So we look at how a child is learning, their ability, so that then we can put strategies and support in place and recommend that schools take it up to try and support the child in that environment. Um, we've had some elements of school saying we appreciate that would really help the child but with the current restrictions we can't allow for things as simple as a movement break because the child's not allowed to leave the classroom because of their bubble or they're not allowed fiddle toys because it's a potential contamination 
site if another child picks it up. So really simple things that would help a child to be able to access education, be able to learn and focus are not in place because of health and safety reasons, um, which is hugely frustrating. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of the rehabilitation process, how, how, Clara, how has that impacted on Zach? And how has this sort of delays in getting back to school impacted on it? I think the whole thing is just completely alters routines all the time. So just as we're settling into doing Zoom sessions with his OT or his physio, then they're going back into school. So then therapists are trying to get an appointment via the Senko and what have you to try and get into school to see the child. Once they're allowed face to face, then next thing we're being sent home again. So it's can't do face to face at home, trying to get equipment back to the house to try and facilitate any kind of therapies at home. Um, speech therapy has possibly been the only one that's worked quite well. He's had a few language segments done. So having a laptop and sat with his speech therapist, who he knows really well, yeah. that's been great. But his physio only started with us, you know, back end of last year. So she'd only met him physically once. Yeah. So then trying to engage him on a, on a Zoom call to do a physio session with a ball that she sent to the house, you know, it's just absolutely impossible. You can't engage with a child that you don't know. No, it's terribly difficult for Zach to understand all these chops and changes. Yeah, I mean, he's great with technology. In, he understands all the different things, you know, all the different platforms. He he said he's he started his own Zoom now, so he can send out Zoom invites to his therapist. Oh, right. So trying to engage him that way seems to work better than just saying, right, Zach, come and sit by the laptop. Yeah. You know, I think it's all swapping and changing, finding a way to engage your own children and adapting the ways that you work with them. Yeah. And Jessica, I assume you've heard many stories like this. Yes, and we've experienced it ourselves with turning our assessments to digital. Um, right. When we're here at the centre, we have access to all sorts of sensory toys. There's wiggle cars, whizzy dizzies, trampoline, you name it, we've probably got it. Right. Whereas when we have a digital assessment, Obviously, a child's in their home. I'm usually at home with my screen. They have their screen. And it's a very different way to assess a child. Um, and you have to put on that almost, I'm going to be a child's TV presenter persona. And it all becomes very dramatic and over the top for a child to be able to engage. Um, and similarly, you still have to pick up on all the body language, but you only have a bit of their body to look at, which can be um, interesting at times. But I would say that the majority of our digital assessments have been a complete success and families have been really happy with it. But you have to have that open communication with families yeah. and the child to make sure it works, um, which is fine. That's great. You think the families have been happy with it. What about... The professionals in the um, school and the, have you seen anyone challenge the fact that the assessments may not be what they conventionally think are needed? We, yeah, we haven't come across that um, because the tests we're using are still the standardised tests that we would use in the centre. Um, 
and if they were ones that we would need to do in person we, we just have adapted to make sure we can do it digitally um so they're very much still standardized and it states within all our reports that we're still going by the testing standards and guidelines and adhering to those to ensure that they are still valid um and we've had a lot of positive engagement actually from schools and some medical professionals as well because we've been able to see families during this time whereas they may not have so they're using more of our report as evidence or asking for copies of test papers so they, they don't have to then replicate them within a clinical setting that's interesting does that mean that in future we're going to be having more digital assessments for children um i don't know it's definitely something that we are going to keep open as an option for families. Um, our only centre is based in the southwest. Um, so I know the latter end of this week, I've got uh, an, a digital assessment with a family from Ireland. So for families where travel might have been a barrier to coming because of the cost, we can now be more accessible, which is really exciting um, yeah. to have those possibilities open up for families um, that may are slightly further afield. Well, I know in the past GPs said it couldn't happen and now lots of GP visits are being done online. Yeah. Um, it's just a really, I guess it's been a time for innovation and adaptation um, and from that there can be fruit. So it's been really good to see that in our setting as well, um, despite a lot of the struggles that people are facing. We are a really small charity um, and we rely solely on donations. There's no governmental support or funding. So the cost, such as our two-day assessment with a therapist, is heavily subsidised by our fundraising activities. Um, and for parents and carers that can afford a contribution towards the cost, we ask that they do. However, we never, ever want that to be a barrier to families accessing our support. Mm. Um, and so families who are on low income are maybe able to access our fee waiver. And you amazing guys have kindly donated £5,000 this year towards our fee waivers, which is allowing us to help more children and young out adults access our care um, which we're just really grateful for so thank you well, that's a great cause um, so how can parents seek support from Vivic? um so parents can refer to us through our website. Um, if you just type in Bibic, so that's B-I-B-I-C, into Google, we're funnily enough the only ones with that name, so it will pop up straight away. Um, and you can look at our website and put in a request for contact or an inquiry about your child. Um, our family services coordinator then get in touch with families. You can also see what we get up to on social media, so on all the usuals like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Again, just put in Bibic and we'll pop up. Um, so, and families can get in touch for all sorts of assessment. It's not just a two day um, that we provide. And we're really willing and keen to work with a family to make sure we get the best possible outcomes for them and the best service for them. And presumably you don't do everything so you're able to signpost families on. Absolutely. Um, and we work with other professionals as well, so we can directly refer to them. Um, 
if we ever feel that there's an area that we might not be able to support with appropriately, we will definitely signpost towards appropriate services um, that can help because it we're there to help a family in the moment and appreciate that we can't help everybody with everything. So we will at least point yeah. you in the right direction. That's really important. And I think, Erin, we do that at um, Erin Mitchell where we, we're the lawyers, but we can't provide everything for families. Do you want to just talk a bit about the signposting we do and work we do to help children with special educational needs? Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, we, we definitely rely very heavily on professionals um, to support us in supporting families, um, especially when it's looking at the education, health and care plan. Um, you know, the professional evidence really is key to ensuring that those are appropriately drafted so that it encapsulates the child's special educational needs, first and foremost, but then also is very, very clear around what the child needs um, to be provided with in order to access education. So, you know, good professional reports are invaluable when it comes to um, redrafting and reconsidering education, health and care plans, and they're absolutely vital um, in a situation where we're looking to appeal to the SCM tribunal, um, because what, what we're aiming to do is to ensure that there is some certainty in the provision that will be available to the child at school. And as long as the professional reports are quantified and they're specified appropriately, we can very easily identify from those reports what needs to go into the EHCP. But of course, we aren't, we're lawyers, you know, we'd, we're not speech and language therapists, we're not occupational therapists, we, we certainly aren't education psychologists. So we can't identify what that child needs. And we absolutely rely on the professionals to um, provide us with that information so that we can then ensure that that is appropriately worded into the EHCP so that it's legally enforceable, first and foremost, but also so that it provides some guarantee, some safety blanket for parents to know that their child is being properly provided for in school settings. Yeah, and, and there's some people mis mistakenly feel like it, when you have a battle over the right school or the right provision, that somehow you're having a battle with the school, but that's not the case. Absolutely not. No, the education, health and care plan is ultimately the responsibility of the local authority. So actually it's, it's on the local authority's shoulders to identify an appropriate school setting. And it's, it's their duty um, that they must provide what's in the education, health and care plan. So to the extent that a school relies on that plan and relies on the funding. They are relying on funding and support from the local authority and, and they should be relying on the professional advices that have informed that plan um, in order to ensure that they're able to support the pupil. But certainly, you know, we're always looking ideally to work with schools to ensure that they have the appropriate funding from the local authority to deliver what's required by the pupil and the key to getting that funding and unlocking that funding is to have it properly specified and quantified into the education health and care plan. And I think you said earlier that some schools have their a named in a statement the child when it's not appropriate. So sometimes the schools are looking for parents to challenge um, these decisions. Absolutely and I think that's going to be um, more so than ever 
in this current climate, as I said earlier, but given that schools haven't been able to meet parents and have that kind of dialogue and have children come and visit the setting or indeed teachers go and visit the child in their primary school. Um, so they are relying much more heavily on the paperwork than I think has ever been the case before. And in, in instances where that paperwork is outdated, you know, their hands are going to be tied somewhat by being named in the EHCP, when in reality, they themselves know that they're not going to be able to meet the needs of that child. Um, so it then, unfortunately, does fall on the parents to to look to challenge the local authority on that decision. But hopefully with the... Well, it's, a good, it's a good example of school and parents working together in the interests of the child. Absolutely. I think the, um, there's instances when there's too many children in the classroom for the parent, to, for the teacher to really give that special attention to the child. And Claire, you mentioned earlier, over 30 children, is that right? Yeah, I think there's about 33, 34 children in Zach's class. And there's two classes in his year group, so over 60 children in year five. So how does he get the teachers or the teaching assistants assistance that he needs in such a large class? <laughs> well, he, he knows how to get people's attention. He's not, he's not backwards <laughs> at coming forwards, I'll say that. Um, he's got it. We've got it quite well organised in school. Like he's been there since he was in nursery and he's mm. now in year five. Um, I've got a good relationship with school staff. Um, and I think, like we were saying earlier, it's about communicating. Yeah. It's certain things that he won't tell his teaching staff, but he'll come home and tell me. Uh-huh. So then I will then go in and say, you know, he was a bit worried about this or he's misunderstood that or... Yeah. You know, and just make sure that those channels of communication are open and that nobody feels like they're being persecuted for challenging something. That's a really important point. That's great advice for all families. You can sometimes as a parent be felt like, oh, she's that mother. You know, she's the one that complains about everything. And there are some people, I do believe, that go in, you know, all gung-ho and think, that everybody in the school's wrong and what have you. But I think, like you're saying, when one teacher and a TA are trying to look after 34 children, you know, they're going to drop a ball here and there. Yeah. So understanding what they're up against. Yeah, and I think understanding that... Advice as well. It's really good advice. And I think understanding that if you are challenging the provision or the right school being named in the statement, you're not challenging the teacher. Or the school. Yeah. You just I don't think any teacher wants to go into school and let children down. No. Or make sure that they don't reach their full potential or leave them in a corner not learning anything. But obviously in such large classes, some children do get overlooked. If we can frame it in that way of we're not challenging the school, we're actually we're challenging the local authority's decision. Yeah. Then you know I'd hope that, that would bring schools even more on side and mm. so they don't feel the need to be defensive because we aren't challenging the school yeah. because as you've rightly said schools you know and teachers their number one priority is to provide appropriate education for the children to ensure that they are yeah. properly supported so it's ensuring that that schools are also empowered to support parents through the yeah. review process um, and updating that education health and care plan at those appropriate points to ensure that they they are being appropriately funded and you've got that level of certainty for the next phase of their education. Yeah, definitely. Really important points. Thank you. 
Um, we're just going to turn to you again, Claire, just about Zach, just so we can hear a bit more about what you mentioned earlier, because he's been... I was thinking he was going to come up, actually. He was just shouting me a few minutes ago. <laughs> I thought he was going to, I thought he was just going to come crashing through the door, to be honest, but he's obviously keeping a low profile today. Come and make an appearance. <laughs> so you're fighting for Zach's law. Yes, we are trying to, we're campaigning currently to um, have epilepsy included in the online harms bill after we were personally attacked by numerous flashing um, tweets back in May last year trying to trigger people to have a seizure. That's awful. Yeah, yeah very um, strange thing for people to do, yet here we are, there's still people doing it, there's, there's still sources available. And, and what, what would be the effect on Zach if he was to see any of this? Fortunately, none as far as we're aware, because he's not photosensitive. Um, I think they've said about 20% of people with epilepsy, correct? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure of the figures. But I know three people directly were affected by these tweets that we know of, um, and it did cause them to have a full tonic-clonic seizure. Oh, that's terrible. Mm, yeah. it's uh... And it's being done intentionally. Yeah, it's it's ignorance though as well because I don't actually think the people that are doing it know the implications of what they're doing because somebody said, oh, go and get your eyes checked if you can't look at these things. It's like, mm. it's nothing to do with somebody's eyes. It's a neurological condition. So, you know, there's just, there's no, there's no intelligence behind the people that are doing it. And so you're hoping to make changes to the online home, arms bill? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we're campaigning for at the minute. And uh, what's the government said so far? Um, not a great deal, unfortunately. Um, whilst it was great for doing fundraising in lockdown, unfortunately, COVID and Brexit have kind of taken up Parliament's time. Yeah. So the white paper has been released, um, but the Epilepsy Society have got more information on that than I do. Good. There's some great work being done by a number of charities, I know, to yeah. try and make sure that online harms bill goes through and we're, we're doing some filming again tomorrow and right. he was on the front page of the daily express oh. um a week last friday what does he think about his media stardom oh he thinks because now he's famous he doesn't have to do school work so <laughs> it's not yeah so we've had that as an excuse as well yeah so uh yeah but hopefully he can make the change, and if he does, then uh, he'll have something to be really proud of. It'd be absolutely, it's absolutely incredible what he's already achieved. We raised £20,400 so far oh, wow. with, you know, from a target of £260. Well, already That's he can be proud of Yeah, exactly. He's achieved so much, and it's not even been a year. So, yeah, I'm very proud of him. Well, make sure you tell his teachers because they'll probably put it in the record. Oh, yeah, you know, like I said, we've got an open channel of communication. I just bombard their inboxes all the time. <laughs> Look what he's done today. Look what he's done. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, I think that's your um, evidence of homeschooling, isn't it? Exactly. He's learnt more than other children have this time. <laughs> Fantastic. Jessica, on the question of evidence of homeschooling, what 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 do you what advice would you give to parents about what they should give to the teachers? Oh, <laughs> um, well, I think we can all appreciate that homeschooling doesn't necessarily happen in a traditional way, um, 
and some children don't engage with worksheet. Um, so what I've been saying to families is just take lots of pictures and send them to your teachers. Take a video. Um, if they've done some writing out of their own choice about something they really love doing, you know, send that to a teacher. It might not necessarily be exactly what they're anticipating, but we're showing development and progress. Um, I had one child that I've recently worked with and doing his phonics was just really difficult and not motivating for him. So I suggested that they put the sounds on the wall um, and use their Nerf guns and you could shoot at the sound once you'd said it. So it's, I appreciate that when you're in lockdown in that situation, it's probably quite difficult to come up with all these different creative ideas. But yeah. in doing that, we can make it a lot more fun, a lot more engaging, and then the learning is more meaningful. Um, That's really good advice. And Erin, I want to just turn to you finally. When children go back to school, I know some parents are concerned that they're going to be taken off the school role because they might not have. Um, fit into the school or done the work that they need to? What's your advice to those families? I mean, there are only relatively exceptional circumstances in which a school can remove a pupil from their school role, legally speaking. Um, so if parents are concerned with that, I would suggest speaking to um, a solicitor if, if that's something that's being threatened. And I think it's something that should be relatively easy to bat away. As I say, there are there are quite exceptional um, reasons as to why a school can remove a pupil from their school role, certainly without the consent of a parent. Um, so certainly do talk to somebody for some legal advice. And obviously, you know, at Omidyar, we do have special educational solicitors and educational solicitors that would be capable of, of assisting with that. But it's, yeah, it's it's really, I think, to have that open dialogue with the school to try and demonstrate what they have been able to achieve um, and to make sure that that everyone's working together. And in the instances where a child has an education, health and care plan, it's important that that is uh, being followed and adhered to, especially section F in the school settings, to make sure that those pupils are being properly supported in their special educational need. Um, and yet, that you know, there, there shouldn't be that kind of threat or lingering concern that a child is going to be removed from a school role um, yeah. so if that is if that is being um, suggested then I would certainly um, be encouraging parents to speak to somebody that, that would be able to help them hopefully relatively quickly. Thank you and I think finally Zach you've arrived and you're going to join us. <laughs> Hello. He's got both legs in cast at the minute. He's got serial casting on his legs. No. So you could just hear him clobbering up the stairs <laughs> and pops banging up the stairs. How are you, Zach? Yeah, not bad. Good. You get a thumbs up for us. <laughs> Excellent. So this is Jessica, this is Erin, and I'm Yogi. We've just been having a chat. You were mentioned a couple of times. Are you looking forward to going to school on Monday morning? Um, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's today's answer. I'm looking forward What are you really looking forward to at school, Zach? More to see my friends. Yeah, you missed your friends. Seeing your friends. Yeah. And, are you um, looking forward to doing work in your classroom? Yeah. Oh, oh good. <laughs> He's trying to impress. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I hope you have a great time. If I wasn't talking to you, I would Well, I hope you have a great time when you go back to school. Thank you. Well, thank you, everybody. And I think we'll wrap up there. Uh, Jessica, Claire, thank you for joining us. Erin, thank you for taking part. Thanks for having us. Thanks. And Zach, thank you. (laughs) See you again. (laughs) Thanks. See you later. See you. Well, thank you all for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then join us for our next episode and stay safe.